Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Shannon Doherty. Hi. Neil Almond. Hello. And Elliot Morgan. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like career development? But first, I'd like to take a second to tell you about the Discord server. A link can be found as part of the show description. And really, it's a place for members of the DAPE family to chat about all things we hold dear, as well as supporting each other in our continued professional development. Links have a seven-day limit, but I'll share them regularly under episodes and over at thinkingdeeply.info. But without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Shannon, what are your career ambitions? I'm sort of on the journey of leadership. I, I think some people will know that I was hoping to be an assistant head next year, and that's not kind of come to fruition, but hopefully, you know, I'll keep looking. Um, but I just, I, it's hard because I don't want to leave the classroom anytime soon, but I also want to be having more of a an, an impact, like a whole school impact or a trust impact. So next year I'm taking on a trust-wide responsibility for our nine primary schools, which is very exciting. Hopefully that will lead to things, um, but maybe one day I will be a head teacher. I don't like to... <laughs> to kind of go, well, that's a big goal of mine because I, I might change my mind, but I would definitely, definitely be interested in becoming kind of deputy assistant head in the cu- next kind of couple of years and see where that takes me. I want to hear more about this, this sort of outreach work you're doing. What, what's that all about? Yeah. And what, what sort of things are you hoping to learn when you're taking part in it? So I will be doing a project on implementing and rolling out walkthroughs for teacher development. I've sort of, I've mapped out like what would be our three year journey in the hope that this becomes more than just a year's work because it isn't just a year's work, but it will involve working with teacher development leads in every school, um, doing training for the trust and for different schools, uh, organizing how people roll out walkthroughs in their schools. We have a trust-wide inset day in February that will kind of be very walkthroughs heavy. So I'll do stuff on that. And I'll be the teacher development lead in my school. So it's kind of like, it's a brand new role. Don't really know what it's gonna look like, but it's I'm out of of school for half a day a week on it. So they're they're investing the time in it, which is good. Um, But it will be a lot of just working with teachers going into classrooms, um, just seeing how it's been implemented and then sharing good practice, I guess. Nice. That's a really, I think that's a really good way to invest in someone because the knowledge you'll gain and the experience you'll gain from undertaking that role can be so useful in so many other aspects of school leadership. So I think, you know, not only are your schools going to benefit, you know, for instance, drawn on something like walkthroughs but having someone overseeing it organizationally you know I think the kids and you are going to get a really really good deal out of that yeah I agree I think the experience that I could gain would be really helpful we have um we've got quite a few different courses in our trust and I did a leadership course the year before last and obviously this will be nice to be able to implement a lot of the things that I learned and I think just just talking about things on a bigger scale because I'm I'm in a one-form school my last school was a one-form school before that it was a two-form with a few bulge classes so being able to get into bigger schools and very different schools because out of the schools in the trust my school is is quite different to the others the others are quite um what I would call leafy Bromley schools I'm really looking forward to the to the experience I'll get there Elliot what about you what are your ambitions um I suppose my ambitions have changed quite a lot over the years. I think I sort of entered the profession starry-eyed thinking, oh, head teacher, that's sort of the end goal. And as I sort of climbed further up the ladder and you see how admin heavy and um, what the, that sort of role is like, I've sort of started to swerve away from it. A, a sort of end career goal would be 
maybe leading teacher development across a trust or um, perhaps some sort of like um, PGCE lecturer um, training people in what, what, I, what I suppose is now the ECF. But um, <clears throat> I suppose a curse of sort of infatuating yourself with research and evidence informed practice is that you always want to implement it on a, a grander scale. So anything on a, on a big scale like yeah, leading teacher development across the trust would be good. What about you, Chris? Bit of a weird answer for me, I guess. I don't really think I've ever had ambitions when it comes to teaching or possibly about anything. <laughs> I'm, I've, I, I got into teaching by accident, as I've mentioned before on the podcast. I spent the first two or three years kind of getting into it and liking it. And by about five or six years into the profession, I started to have very minor existential crises about the idea of well, this being what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I never had any ambitions to be a head teacher. I, my family are teachers. And so I'm kind of, I know to an extent what a head teacher's work often entails. And it wasn't something that particularly ever interested me. And to be blunt, I didn't really understand the other career path options that existed in education. I thought it was effectively where you go via head being a head teacher or you stay in the classroom. So that's a very long way of saying that I don't really have any nailed down ambitions and I've been a much happier person since I completely gave up on the idea of defining them in advance. That's not to say I'm aimless. I now just find things I think will be useful to people in schools and are interesting to me and just try and learn about them and maybe get good at them and then see what happens, kind of keep my eyes open on what's at the periphery and I might otherwise miss. Um, so yeah, slightly different view on career ambitions in that I sort of don't have any. What about you, Neil? Similar to Elliot, when I kind of realised I wanted to go down teaching, I think given that the the system was Wales, where there is no kind of academy structures, and when we kind of you know growing up, the academy program wasn't really a thing. So I think the the stereotypical uh, career progression was teacher, subject leader, assistant head, deputy head, then like perhaps head teacher, and as people have alluded to, really not much interest in the kind of work that their teachers do um, just because of how far removed from the classroom they tend to be and also how far away from teaching and learning um, they're perceived to be and I'm sure that there are this isn't the same for all heads I'm sure there are heads out there who are purely focused on teaching and uh, learning but just from kind of the examples that I've kind of grown up and around so for me, knowing what I know now, I think director of education for an academy trust would be kind of a, an ideal role for me where you can get that overview of um, education, teaching, learning across some schools. Um, but I want that to be me kind of in schools as much as possible or working with teachers, kind of developing curriculum and bits like that, not necessarily just this, you know, face on some sort of hierarchical chart of leadership that you see in a, a handbook. Um, you know, I want to be there on the chalk face, making sure that I'm, you know, there teaching as much as possible and helping uh, staff out. That's the plan. It's really interesting you say that because I interviewed Garth Rain this week and in a couple of weeks time, he'll be one of the guests on season three. And he seems to have found the balance between being a head teacher but also being a head teacher who's focused on teaching and learning. And I'll, I'll not give too much away because he goes into qu quite a bit of detail about how he got to that stage. So I think it, it definitely is possible to be a head teacher who gets to focus on the things that we, that we sort of care so much about. But I, I'm totally with you. And it's actually really refreshing to hear other people talk about the idea of focusing on teaching and learning because, you know, I, I quickly realized that my passion was in like you said, being involved with teachers on, on, the, on the ground with them. And, you know, I enjoy working and supporting teachers as much as I do teaching children, you know, and I always talk about how there are many parallels between the two. 
And so for me, the more I can do that, the better. And it's good to hear other people say it because, you know, I think 10 years ago, you may, the conversation might've been different because the pathways might, might've been, you know, more reduced. I don't know, you're nodding channels. So I'm gonna bring you in there. I, I just think, yeah, I totally agree that it can be done and it has changed. And I think the job would be what you make it. And I think people who do so much good and don't get me wrong, you do such a good job as director of education and Elliot, you would be wonderful whatever you end up doing, but you do so much good and you know so much and you, you I think schools would really miss out just because you think, oh, I can't focus too much on teaching and learning because it is just what you make it, I guess. I think if you look at people like Kate Overidge, who is a bit, a bit of a rebel as a head and she kind of, she really prioritises what she thinks is the most important. And I think, I think you need to have had some time being an assistant head or a deputy head and really see it and watch it happen to be able to have the confidence to do things like that and say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to prioritise this actually, because I don't need to do that. That isn't part of the job. That's not actually a legal requirement. So I think it's really important that you've not rushed into it, but I do think that you could be ahead and focus on teaching and learning. And I guess it depends on the structure of the, the place you're working at, you know, in a trust where you might have, you might be ahead of school. So you might have, less responsibility or if it's just your school by yourself I think I think everything's everything's kind of very different depending on whatever setting you're in but um should I make that jump at some point then I would like to think that I would be very focused on teaching and learning and I've, I always say this I think that everyone should be should have some sort of regular teaching commitment and so I would hope that I'd be able to cover or something, do PPA, whatever it might be. But I think that I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the, the Gareth Rain podcast because I think he sounds like he's, uh, he's, he's nailed it. So I just jump in there. This is someone who's, had a, who's managed to have a listen to a sneak peek of, of that episode. I found it fascinating listening to a head teacher who's so invested in teaching and learning and, and how he's implemented it. So I definitely recommend listening to that episode when it comes out. On, on the subject of ambition, just for those listening who perhaps like me are, or perhaps like I was uh, a decade or so into class teacher role with no real eye on moving anywhere else, that's great. <laughs> like whenever I meet someone who says to me, oh no, I, I, I love what I'm doing, happy where I am. I, I always think, well, that's, as far as I'm concerned, as much it, it, that that's an ambition that just to get good at that. My, you know, my partner Sylvia, she's a secondary teacher. She has zero interest in becoming a head of department or anything along those lines. She's she's had offers, and I'm sure she'd be wonderful at it. But she just wants to get exceptionally good at being a classroom teacher, and I'm sure we'd all agree that have a huge amount of admiration for people who do make that particular career choice. Over the last five years, we've put systems in place where that's encouraged because we, we want to keep our really good staff, but if our really good staff don't want to become leaders, well, there are, there are definitely pathways, you know, and when we went to Singapore, you know, people are probably sick of me talking about how they said that the teacher with the most experience was the one who worked with the people who struggled at maths the most. And so we really bought into that. And so at the minute, you know, year on year, it's becoming more and more refined. And we've got an AHT who's looking after everybody's career development, sort of supporting them in their professional learning. And definitely 100%, you know, if people want to become proficient teachers, I definitely want them in my school. You know, I, I want them. And, you know, I think the more schools that do that, the better our education system will be because it ties into all those things that we've talked about in the past. You know, Chris, we're talking about, you know, when you pass someone on who's not fully formed, the whole community loses out. I think it's the same when you have groups of schools that have really strong teachers who are committed to just being teachers, then equally the whole community can learn from them. You know, so I, th I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, if you were to ask my wife what she wants to do in the future, you know, I think her main ambition is to be the best teacher she can be every day she goes into school, you know, and then to be a really great mum when she's at home because, you know, those are our two main 
things that she cares about. So I think that's a really good point, Chris. We've, we've talked about ambition. Um, Neil, I'm going to go to you because you've made this decision recently. How, how do you know it's the right time for career progression? I think it'll be one of those things where it's probably different for everyone and everyone will have their own different reasons as to why they want to move on. So kind of speaking from kind of personal experience, and I think it's kind of something that doesn't really get much of a, a look in when you kind of ask people about why people do eventually move on. I think a lot of that comes down to um, values and your values, and that can be predominantly, and I don't really want to, you know, restrict teaching to just this kind of prog trad kind of continuum as it were but you know if you have a head teacher who is firmly in one camp and your values are in another camp or somewhere else further along it is difficult to I think feel that you are doing your best if as a result of where that head teacher is in that continuum that you feel like that ends up restricting your um, teaching and the way that you have to go about teaching the class. So that for me is certainly a big uh, driver for me and is certainly, I would argue, not the only reason, but certainly a very large reason as to why I've kind of decided um, for various say various other reasons as well as why I've decided it's time to make moves from previous roles to really kind of make sure that where I end up really kind of embodies kind of the values that I personally believe in and I'm lucky I think that I've found somewhere that really kind of does do that and I'm also I think fortunate that I'm in a position where any parts where I feel like they don't kind of necessarily confer to my values. I have a, I'm in a position where I might be able to, you know, change and persuade people to think otherwise. But for me, it's all comes down to what your values are as a teacher, what your values are towards teaching and learning, your values as to what you think schools are for, um, as to when you decide it's time to actually move on from your current place. And it's kind of something I think, you know, I think you see loads of at the beginning of your career, you know, you're just delighted that you have a job come September when you graduated in that May. And so certainly people know about my experiences. And, you know, I took took the first job that um, was offered to me and it wasn't a place that, you know, necessarily for, at the time of my, my values were having gone through a three year BA weren't necessarily, you know, the right values for me at that time. If I did it now, it might be slightly different. So, you know, values can change as you kind of grow and develop but certainly trying to find a place that you know is represents your values is the way to go about it and I think it's something that's very hard to do because adverts and kind of the way kind of schools promote themselves tend to be quite generic I don't think I can maybe count on maybe two or three two or three examples that I've seen where, you know, schools count themselves, um, you know, classify themselves as, you know, we have a knowledge rich curricula and, you know, these schools actually mean it as opposed to just throwing it out there as a buzz term. So it takes a lot of work to kind of scratch away at the surface to kind of actually work out what the school's values are. But I think if you can kind of find that place, I think what you'll find is that people stay there for a long time. And that's kind of one of the reasons I'm sure there are others, you know, family, location, geography and all that obviously plays a part. But I think the main kind of driver is values. I just wanted to say, I think uh, that, uh, that makes total sense. I think another reason why people often make that step is frustration, in particular frustration with things that they see above them in the food chain within a school just decisions that wind them up or decisions they think could be done better and they just decide that you know actually I, I want to be more involved here in some ways I think in for that reason that there's an, an opposite sense to what you say as well in that I think if I found a school where which perfectly matched my values and I was a class teacher there it might be the case that I'd just sit 
and be happy as a class teacher and have no desire to 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 do anything above but i think it's actually sometimes when you're in a school where there's a slight disparity between what you believe and what you see the school doing that can drive you into some of those into towards middle leadership or towards senior leadership so i think it that idea of values is potent and i think it actually works both ways interesting to hear those two points because i've sort of similar experience of me that uh, Neil's had I mean we're both sort of going into leadership roles fairly recently um, and I left teaching for a year um, in part due to things like workload and I think that has driven me building what Chris has just said driven me towards wanting to reduce workload for others so as Chris saying seeing these decisions above you and wanting to have an impact on, on those things that's certainly driven me into um, looking for progression career-wise in terms of knowing when the right time for career progression is, I don't think you ever truly will. Um, I was reading about leadership a couple of days ago and I came across something called the Peter Principle. Um, and it's basically that it states that a person who's competent at their job will earn a promotion to a position that requires different skills. So you're promoted based on your success in, in a previous role until eventually you're going to reach a level where you're no longer competent because the skills you had in your previous role don't necessarily translate into the new one. And I think head teachers are a classic example of that. If you were a sort of an ex-teacher, you signed up to teach 30 kids and now suddenly you've got a manager budget of potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds and, and nobody has that sort of business acumen or, or knowledge for that. Um, but all of that being said, I don't think anybody should hold themselves back. If they think they're ready, then, then go for it. So it's more about a sort of best time rather than a right time. So I'd say the best time is when you feel ready to cope with more responsibility and when, and when you feel like you've got the right support around you. Because luckily I've got loads of great teacher friends who gave me loads of great advice and, and helped to support me to sort of pursue my own career progression. Uh, and uh, there was somebody had uh, tweeted this saying once and it, and it really stuck with me. Um, and it was, <clears throat> it's not your years of experience, but your experience in those years. I mean, that really rang true for me. Who's somebody who's only been teaching for seven years. And thinking, oh, should I sort of try and become an assistant head or deputy head now, or should I wait another few years? And I know it's a debate that we've um, had amongst ourselves a few times. Um, and again, I don't think there's ever really a, a right time per se. I kind of want to talk about something you said. You said, um, don't feel held back or don't hold yourself back. And I think, you know, we've been teaching the same amount of time we trained together. But I, I'm going to sound like a baddie here, but you know, you see posts on Twitter when people have been teaching for a year, maybe two years, and you see them posting their big announcement tweets about their new role. And I just think, how? Now I know that there are some amazing teachers out there who have probably smashed it quicker than I have you know not saying I've smashed it now but I just think how can you after a year or two find yourself in a position where you have honed your craft so much and you have learned so much that you can then take on such a big role and I know it depends on what the role is but I do worry sometimes that people think oh, you know what, I'd, I'd love to lead a, uh, on maths because I really like maths, but there's so much more to it than just liking maths or there's so much more than just, you know, liking a subject. And I think sometimes people want to rush into it. I, I am one of those people. When I was in NQT, my year group partner was a phase lead and she'd kind of gone NQT, science lead, English lead, phase lead for two year groups, phase lead for three year groups. And then the next year she was assistant head. And I saw that progression year on year. And I thought, well, that, that's what I'll do then. That's, that's how it works. And I didn't do that. Um, but I, I would have tried if, if I had stayed in that school, I think I would have tried to do that. And I think I wouldn't have been a very good teacher if I'd been, if I'd thrown myself into such a big role, because you end up like if me now as a maths lead slash sort of, semi-senior leader the number of times that I get pulled out of class to deal with something or I have to go to someone else's class or I'm observing or I'm doing a learning walk or I've got meetings and I just think if you're doing that in your second or third year of teaching 
where, when, when are you actually practicing? When are you actually teaching? So I think don't hold yourself back, but don't, don't rush because you might end up, and there are so many examples of this where you end up being like a, an assistant or a deputy and you go, what on earth? And you step back because you've, you've burnt out and then you, you just, you go back to being a class teacher anyway. I just, I worry that sometimes people think they need to rush it. I know I sound like the bad guy. This reminds me of an, an experience I had. I can't remember if it was three or four years in, but I went for a, <laughs> a deputy head role and head teacher was all, yeah, okay, yeah, knock yourself out. You know, you do what you got to do. Um, went for the interview, came back and goes, yeah, I wasn't ready. And she goes, well, I knew that, but uh, you had to learn the hard way, didn't you? <laughs> it's like, you know, and so it was it was a good experience because I genuinely thought, OK, I'm going to stay here for another four years. I'm going to get really good at my job and then we'll see what the next step is. And, and you know, my head supported me in that. But she 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 had seen this before. Clearly, she knew what over ambition looked like. And but like I said, she 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 was expecting me to come back in and talk to her as soon as that uh, as soon as that interview was over. You know, I think it's it's quite common, but the better we get on our jobs, the more competent we are to do those those roles that involve multiple people multiple sort of different organizations and you know you know neil and i were talking about mental models and me and tom gary talked about mental models for school leadership at uh, at MathsConf. and i don't think something like that develops south of 10 years i think you really need to get to know not only the content and the sequencing and the many many ways pupils can interpret what happens to them in the classroom but then you've also got to see how adults interpret it in different situations you know so something like being an nqt mentor can be really useful at the start of that journey and then over time you build up those experiences because right now i'm i'm drawing on things that have happened to me in the past you know very rarely does something totally new come up you know so i i, I totally get where you're coming from but i you know i speak as someone who has made that mistake himself and then like I said, I learned the hard way, you know, a really good experience, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we live and learn. I think it's easy to forget how short the career ladder can be in teaching. Anyway, let's say you spent 15 years as a class teacher, honing your craft, being maybe an NQT mentor, leading on science or some of the bits and bobs. And then you think, okay, well, what's next? With that kind of experience, if someone was, were, this way inclined, there would be no issues in someone saying, going, okay, so a couple of years as an assistant head teacher, a couple of years as a deputy head, and then into headship. And then you've still got 15, 20 years of being a head teacher if you are that way inclined. This idea that you need to rush as high and as far as you can. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Shannon to an extent. I think if you were to spend you know, nearly 40, 40 or 45, whatever it might be, 40 years in teaching, and you had three or four years of classroom experience. And based on those three or four years of classroom experience, you were then talking to teachers about how to hone their craft, how to um, deal with relationships with children, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. For the next 36 years, that would be, um, yeah, that would strike me as quite a challenging way to do things. I, I think having a, a bedrock of classroom experience has to be valuable. I'm not saying everyone has to do it that way or that that's the way that would work for everyone, but that's just from my gut how it feels. I also think you can't really underestimate or you shouldn't underestimate the enormous sense of self-esteem that you get from being really good at your job. You know, because I remember what it was like at the start of my teaching career, and I dreaded every every lesson because every lesson was something new to learn and some situation I'd never been in before. And now, like I say, when I'm helping other teachers, so oh, yeah, I've had this conversation. This is brilliant. I know exactly what to do, and then I feel good because I know I've helped someone else because I've seen how that sort of helps people over the long term. And I can, you know, hand on heart say to them, I know why you feel like this, but this is how we make it. You know that feeling go away or this is how we get to the next step and, and become really good at our job so I, I don't think we should underestimate that at all so chris you transitioned from the main pay scale to the upper pay scale what was that like before i describe 
how I did. It's worth noting that I'm well aware that this isn't necessarily representative of a lot of people's transition through the pay scale. Thinking about friends and family who have done the same thing, for example, I know mine is a bit odd. I was in a situation where the head teacher wanted me to stay at the school and I had hinted that I was considering looking to somewhere else. And so the head teacher effectively said, look, I'm going to move you up onto UPS. No questions asked almost. All you need to do is write a letter, give us some bump about the, the parts of your role that have a whole school impact. And then, you know, you'll sail through. And that's effectively how it happened. I went through from, in, from the main scale to UPS by writing a letter. I'm well aware, though, that it's a very different story if you are at a school perhaps where for whatever reason you're not immediately valued in that way and regardless of people's capability that is something that sometimes happens i would say that that transition from the main scale to the upper pay scale again this is just based on anecdote often occurs with teachers moving from one school to another they'll often reach kind of the maximum on the main scale in the school they work at. And then in order to make that next step, they need, they find somewhere that's, that's willing to invest in them in that way. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where that transition is quite easy. If the school explicitly value you and what you do, and it can be quite challenging otherwise. Uh, yeah. I find that really interesting, Chris, because I won't so much talk about my experience in my school, but in my first school, we had a new head teacher start the same day as I started. And um, I vividly remember her saying, look, I'm well aware that there are a number of you who next year will be kind of progressing towards upper pay scale. And I don't know how it's worked previously, but now it's going to be a case of you are going to have to evidence your kind of whole school impact and you're going to have to come to me and we're going it's going to be a process and I remember you know people always um gossip about their pay in the staff room and after school and whatnot and I remember sitting in a in a group with most of them and people saying oh no I didn't get it this year I'll have to go next year and it was this real process of you know, you're not all going to automatically get it. You have to come at me with evidence. And then I think the next year people realised that she was serious about that. And it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? That you, you've hit M6. So now you really need to kind of, unless you're going to show this whole school impact and you're going to show me that you can really make a difference here and have, an, have you know, be quite effective you you stop and I don't know what people's appraisal systems like in their schools but in most schools I've been in it's been a case of you get into an office you go cool yeah you're working nicely everything's ticking along off you go and you're you're bumped up but I guess that isn't the case for everyone and I guess I don't know if other people have also had that that kind of oh no you're not going to be up on upper because you haven't given me enough evidence. I'm, I imagine that there are people that have just had to stick stick on M6 or like you said, move on because they have to find a school that is going to give it to them or that they can they can somehow prove in that moment that they are worth it. It's a, it's a really interesting part of our job, I think, that you can kind of sail through the main scale, but to get onto upper, it's this really big thing. And I think talking about... Um, kind of what we touched on earlier about teachers who just want to be teachers. There's so much chat on Twitter, isn't there, about, you know, I've been a teacher for 12 years, but I don't want to progress into leadership, but, but there's nowhere for me to go. What do we do? And Kieran, I, you know, you said that you've got structures in place for people who are in that position. And I think that's brilliant because otherwise those people will just, they'll, either, they'll probably leave the profession completely. So I do think the whole pay scale thing of, of um, teaching is a it's a weird one but I just I've got this real vivid memory of of her laying out the process and saying you are going to be working for this this isn't just a tick box you have to work for it it's which is obviously a different experience to what you had Chris 
Yeah, just just to add to that, I, I wonder if any of you have seen this on Twitter as well or heard it from colleagues, but of teachers who have been teaching for so long that they've gone, oh, I don't want to move or progress because no school can afford me because they've reached such a level in, in their salary uh, that they're actually too afraid to move or, or don't want to because I wonder if anyone, any of you have had that experience because I remember being a student and that was one of the first things my uh, teacher, my mentor had said to me. He's like, oh, I'm never going to move because I don't think any other school can afford me because I've been teaching for too long. Yeah, on that more, because it's uh, quite a common, well, it's certainly becoming far more common, I think, that practice where specific job adverts are kind of being advertised with a specific kind of uh, salary range based on the main scales. I think there's probably a big discrepancy of what we're kind of hear, hearing here about whether you're, and I might be wrong, about whether your school is a local authority school or whether your school is in an academy school. I certainly remember uh, when I was teaching in Westminster, if you were new to the local authority, then you had to do two years on M6 in that local authority before you even thought, before you could even apply to go on to the upper pay scale. So quite different. I found anecdotal of course but i found that experience is undervalued to quite a large extent in the primary schools that i've worked in they will a lot of leaders will see an nqt who looks confident seems to be have fairly decent subject knowledge and will go yep that teacher can almost certainly do 95 percent of what an experienced teacher can do but for not nothing like 95% of the pay. And so that's what I'm after. It's often in the subtle unnoticed parts of the job where a more experienced teacher proves their value in some of the things that arguably aren't um, measurable. Now I'm being careful to use that word measurable there because one of the things that I know that some schools do in order to get teachers to jump through the hoops between main scale and, and upper pay scale and also then between the levels of the upper pay scale is to say show me your classroom data prove to me that you're a in inverted commas outstanding teacher based on your data which is it goes without saying that that is an exceptionally flawed approach but as i say it's actually some of these unmeasurable parts and i was just reading something today that explored teacher development in uh, british columbia in um, Singapore, Shanghai, etc., and how over time the impact that a teacher has on other teachers and how they support other teachers, how they develop other teachers is an explicit part of that career development process. And thinking back to my progression through the main scale and then to the upper pay scale, it was always something that was implicit. It was always the it was known, I like to think, that I would be willing to and was, I hope, able to support less experienced teachers. Someone could go, oh, I've not taught the fractions or this aspect of fractions before in year five. I know Chris has. I'll go and seek him out at four o'clock or whatever it might be. And I think that was appreciated. And that was one of the reasons why I went through M the main scale to the upper pay scale as I did. I wonder whether there is an extent to which the support of other colleagues could be made more explicit at schools as a key aspect of what it means to develop as a teacher. Because again, like I say, when I think back to certain discussions I've had with people who have moved from NPS to the upper pay scale, it's often involved stuff like what, do, what does it look like in your classroom? Quite a narrow view of what an experienced teacher can bring to a school. Yeah, that, that's the that's the redressing or the refocusing that we've done, where I you know I I don't get involved in the finer details. So I couldn't tell you what was on the list to move into upper pay scale, but I do know that there's a reprioritization of coaching. And so our expert teachers, you know, I think we're using a lot of the materials from the ambition as a, as a guide to what sort of behaviors expert teachers are, are expected to, um, to be performing and to, to have, I don't know, internalized. 
And so, you know, you'll find that those expert teachers are coaching less experienced teachers. They are, you know, open doors into which others can go into. And I'd be very surprised if it wasn't a case that they're sitting down during their appraisal, like Shannon said, and discussing how they have moved the school forward in those in those ways, you know, because we're, you know, I'm certainly in a situation where I'm reporting to my head teachers three times a year and then having appraisal meetings. So the system's pretty robust in, in terms of, you know, how often you get to discuss what you're doing, you know, and it, it's supportive and it's, it's based in reality. You know, it's not a case of, you know, we don't just pull up the data and talk about that. We talk about the whole picture and maybe spend quite a few hours over the year. So I, I would be very surprised if, if they weren't having the conversations you described, Chris, when they're talking about their moves, because like I say, moving towards, you know, I'm trying to get them to call them master teachers because that's what they call them in Singapore. And I think that sounds pretty cool. But uh, I think expert teachers where they, they may have landed, you know, very much influenced by some of the documents, you know, I've been pushing them towards the Ambition Institute and saying, you know, these guys have got their heads screwed on in terms of teacher development. What can we learn from, from them? So I think it's definitely possible. And hopefully as things move forward, it will become more commonplace you know, because when we talked to Matt about the early career framework and the role of schools working with each other and in supporting their teacher development, you know, I think it makes common, it makes sense, you know, but we shall see. So Elliot, I'm coming to you for the next one because obviously you've had quite a lot of experience in this area recently. What, what have your recent interview experiences been like? Yes, that's right, listeners. I failed many an interview recently. Thanks for pointing out. No, yeah, I, I um, left my previous role in December, so I, I had maybe three or four months of interviews and applications. Um, a very long, monotonous process. Um, especially during COVID, it, it was different to what it would usually be like. There was, I didn't once in any of the interviews have to go and teach a whole class. I didn't have to do any school council interviews. Um, some things that are sort of normally a mainstay of, of a leadership interview, perhaps. Um, I was in one interview, it was over like the course of a day, um, as SLT interviews can, can be sometimes. I was left in a room for maybe about two hours by myself over the course of the day, um, sort of twiddling my thumbs. Um, I interviewed, I was interviewed by people wearing masks and visors, and I was also wearing a mask. And that was probably one of the most impersonal experiences of my life. You cannot read any facial expression or anything like that. So yeah, it's been very interesting um, interviewing during COVID. Um, something that I learned is you, you just got to be prepared to fail. Sometimes nerves get the better of you. Um, you get asked a very simple question. Like I got asked a, a very simple question, which was, um, can you tell me about a time when you've had a challenging child in your classroom and when you dealt with them? And that's every year you have a challenging child or challenging children. And my mind just went blank. I honestly could not think of one for, for whatever reason. And I think that really shot me in the foot and I didn't get invited back. Um, and I had to fail a lot of applications and interviews before I really understood the process. Um, so normally uh, one, one head gave me some great, adv great advice about visiting schools. Always visit a school before um, <clears throat> you apply because, well, there's many reasons as to why, but you get to introduce yourself, you get a feeling of the school. And I thought because of COVID, well, schools won't be doing visits. So I didn't really make that effort to at first. Um, and a lot of schools weren't allowing visits, but I could have also called up ahead and, and said, can I just have a chat to you for five minutes about your school? And, and being that proactive uh, was something I didn't, I didn't really think about. Um, where I failed most was probably personal statements because nobody had ever taught me how to uh, write one. Um, I certainly embarrassed myself quite a few times at the start and wasted a lot of school's times in, in writing mine. And I suppose to sort of roundabout uh, bring back to that point of being prepared to fail is that I've received a lot of critical feedback, some that I agreed with, some that I disagreed with, but all of it at the end of the day, you've got to take on board and, and roll with those punches. Um, but there are a lot of positives to, to those failed interviews as well. I mean, I spent a lot of time reflecting on my career so far and thinking about what have I actually accomplished? What impact have I had? Um, and I reached out to a lot of more knowledgeable others, uh, more knowledgeable others like, um, our friend of the podcast, Matt Swain, he was very helpful in um, <clears throat> helping me to answer interview questions and sort of what the process would be like. Um, 
and I've put all of those failures and mistakes into a blog. So if anybody's thinking about going for an SLT role, don't make the same mistakes I made. Read the blog and, and hopefully it'll prepare you for, for, um, for those roles and you won't spend four months like I did. Anybody else? What, what are your views on, uh, what, what are your recent experiences, Shannon? Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I have sort of been looking at jobs. I haven't really put as much effort into it as you did, Elliot. Um, but I went to go and see a couple of schools and I just wanted to add on to what you said about going to visit schools. I think it's so important because I think you really get a feel for the school. I don't think you can get much of a feel for a website, even if you have a phone call with them you don't see things. And so I really, I felt really lucky that I got to go and see a couple of schools. One was after school, so you didn't get as much of a feel then, but you got to see staff and you got to see what the kind of, um, the like the atmosphere was like. And I, the other one I went to see during the day and I got to see the children and how they were. And you get to see like, Neil, you were talking about values earlier. And I think you get to see that in practice and you then, like you said, you introduce yourself to the head and the head then remembers you. And I, I've had lots of conversations with different head teachers about this, just kind of, it, just very casually, but they always say, they always remember the people from their visits. And when they see that application, if obviously if it was a good visit, they go brilliant. And if it was not a good visit, they go, well, I remember that one. But I, do, I think it's so important. And that impression that you make and that they make on you is really important it's a two-way street it's it, you know it's not just about you like the first call I went to look at my appointment was at four and I was left in the office by myself until half past four and no one came to check on me and no one offered me a drink I'd driven for an hour no one asked me if I needed the loo and I just thought well this is not a place for me because I want to work in a place where they check on their visitors and if someone's come to to look around for a job, I want to show them that their time is important to me. And even if I am going to be half an hour late, for whatever reason, because things come up, I'm going to show them that we care here and that we're not just, you know, a, a machine or a business. So I do think those um, those visits are so important. And even though I haven't had an interview for a while, uh, I, I think those visits can really make or break your your application. Adding to Shannon and Elliot's points about school visits, I appreciate there are some circumstances where you might be desperate for a job and you're just happy to get hold of anything that you can. But if you're in the fortunate circumstances where that isn't the case and you can take your time and where you can be more careful about making sure that the school matches your needs and your values, I think it's quite worth on a school visit to be a little bit more open, perhaps arguably a little bit more provocative in your questions and in your discussions than you might otherwise be. I think that sense of forwardness where you say, excuse me, can I ask what your marking policy is? Can I see some books? Which might come across as forward or rude can potentially save you from a job that you are not happy in. So if I were to give one bit of advice, it's to don't feel like you're there to impress on a visit. On a visit, you are really there to suss out the school to find out whether they and you match. So if there's any time where you're going to maybe exaggerate your values, exaggerate your personality, that's probably a pretty good time to do it. At the very least, you might save yourself an interview. You might save yourself the bother of going away from your class or away from your responsibilities for a day and you, it's only when you get there and you're there for two or three hours that you realise, no, ha actually, this school doesn't match me. Or worse, you know, you might, as I say, take a job and only realise a year or two years later that that wasn't the place for you. In short, on those school visits, really probe, really try and get to the bottom of things. Don't be afraid to ask some quite difficult questions if you need to. Just to say one thing on what Chris said about, you know, probing those teachers, the one question I've always found valuable, and it's one question I have always kind of asked a head teacher is staff over staff turnover for the last three years and why, if it is particularly high, it seems high given the 
whatever form entry it is, that's one that you can really kind of dig get in, dig beneath the surface and see what is actually happening. So a top tip perhaps to end this section. Asking those questions is exactly how you work out if it's somewhere you belong. Because, you know, we talk on this podcast about all the things that we've had to do either because they were mandated or they were thought to be best practice. And in my head, I am pretty resolute that I'm not going back to those behaviors, certainly not as a leader asking other people to have to work somewhere where, for instance, they have to mark every single book every single night or any of the other things that we realize sort of aren't the best use of teacher time and are, like Elliot said, you know, workload is a big reason why you would want to move on from school. And so, yeah, I think that's how we get that sense of feeling is by asking those what seem like difficult questions, but actually any head teacher who has their values aligned as I would interpret as correctly will be confident in saying, actually, this is what we did. You know, this is what we do. Um, and yeah, and, and happily answer that question. So I think that, that's solid advice. I think it's before we close up it's worth noting Elliot you know that you know you joke about having so many interviews and stuff earlier on this year but you couldn't have been on the lookout for a school and for a job at a more difficult time in the last 20 years you know because as teachers we know when the schools we want will be applying will be you know looking for their new teachers looking for their new school leaders but for 18 months you know two academic years everything went out the window you know so i think of all of us you probably got the most robust understanding of what it it looks like to apply for a role in a i don't know if stressful situation is the right word but certainly in a in a situation that's not conducive to the to the process that you were trying to go through you know so i think fair play to you and you know even though we joke and you know i think more power to you So all that's left to say is if you're interested in those interview tasks that Neil and Elliot were talking about earlier on, Elliot in season one, episode five, did a tier list where he ranked those most common interview tasks in terms of how suitable he thinks they are for teacher interview processes. To those of you at home, thanks for listening. 